Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. While diagnosis is emotional and life-altering for everyone, the story I'm about to share is one of the most dramatic and life-changing Parkinson's diagnoses I have ever encountered. Joining me on this podcast journey is reporter and producer Nikki Reitmeyer. Larry, I have a feeling that we might need some tissues today. Yeah, I think you're right. Why don't you take a minute and go grab those? Okay. (laughs) It is going to be quite a roller coaster ride, so buckle up. I want to introduce you to Jeanette Fisher-Pinn and her husband, Barry. Their PD story starts out the same way many of our own stories do, with symptoms beginning to creep into our everyday life. And for them, that was the year 2014. I've been a runner for a gazillion years, and uh, it was always my source of, of pleasure and stress relief. I, I noticed uh, Jeanette's gait was uh, definitely had changed and that there was something wrong. And I developed a sort of a cramping in my foot. I couldn't flatten my foot out during a, a run, and that continued on for a little while. I thought it was something to do with my foot, so I engaged in orthotics and tried everything under the book, went to my GP, and she tried everything, treating my foot with different things, orthotics and creams. And Again, the, the foot treatment probably went on for close to two years. I had every test known to man, C- CT scans, and everything but, a, but an MRI. This same year, Nikki, Jeanette's longtime family physician suddenly just retired without notice. Oh, geez, that sucks. Uh, Don't you hate that? Yeah. So hard to find a good GP. So true. Uh, So she was without a GP for the first time in as long as she could remember. Uh, But, you know, life motors on, symptoms are excused, ignored, untreated, undiagnosed. Jeanette and Barry have been together 30 years, three grown kids. And in 2015, they moved into their current home on Bowen Island. It's a 15-minute ferry ride from Horseshoe Bay Terminal just in North Vancouver. They've got the the, the windows overlooking the water. Oh, it's so beautiful. Lucky them. Bowen Island is so beautiful. It's yeah. this quaint little island on the Pacific Ocean, big, beautiful fir trees. It's this idyllic pace of life. They must have loved moving there. Yeah, well, and not only that, but they found a new general practitioner. So Perfect. Hey, right life there on Bowen Island. was looking great. Yes. So in September 2017... Symptoms still undiagnosed. They went on vacation with friends to Greece. When we landed in Greece after a very long flight, it was very hot and it was, it was really, uh, it was just uncomfortable. And I couldn't. It was like I could not shake the jet lag. And um, we went onto a boat where we were jumped off the side of the boat to go swimming, and in the middle of the Adriatic Sea, and uh, my friends and husband jumped off in front of me, and they swam away, and I jumped off and landed in the water and realized that I couldn't swim because my left side of my body shut down, and I was like, yeah, thankfully the Adriatic Sea is really salty because I was able to get myself, my wits about me, and I was floated back to the... uh, the boat and they came back to the boat later and said well, what happened to you Jeanette and I said oh it was just a little chilly for me or something and it was like 38 degrees outside but it was chilly inside and uh, so that was the start of it for for me um, because I knew something was wrong something was definitely off at that point God, that must have been absolutely terrifying to to jump in the water and think, I I am not able to swim. And I can't believe how how calm and and cool and collected she was keeping that all to herself. Uh, No, no, no. I would have been like, I couldn't swim. I couldn't move. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, in those moments, uh, we we don't want our partners to know necessarily that things are going on. Like, I I know I've hidden some stuff every now and again because you're like— Oh, this I don't I don't really want to get this checked out, and I don't want to panic anybody. Right, so you don't want to be a burden. Yeah. So Jeanette and Barry cut that vacation short. Oh, as so you, they did. They did yeah. ultimately, and her family doctor uh, back on Bowen Island suggested she go straight to the hospital upon arrival in Vancouver. So she was at the Lionsgate Hospital for a full day of tests, and at the end of that day, it was recommended she see a neurologist. After a month of wondering what could be wrong, a month of imagining all the horrible things it could be, a month of discussions with Barry that maybe she has that same horrible, deadly disease her uncle died from, she finally was going to get some answers. This was now October 2017 when she had her first visit with her new neurologist. We went in and saw her and 
um, she had her suspicions because I have at different times I have a slight I have a, a tremor and not a classic pill roll tremor but a, I the left side of my body does shake and there was there was defining symptoms for her um, that she could come up with something she said she thought it was Parkinsonium in looking but she couldn't definitively diagnose until I had an MRI which I did so when they said Parkinsonian what were you thinking I didn't know what to think. Yeah, we were going down the route again of um, her uncle's disease. And, and so when we heard that it might be a relative of Parkinson's, it was actually, it was a relief. It was a relief. I guess so, yeah. I guess at least having some sort of idea of what you're facing is a relief instead yeah. of facing nothing but a mystery. At least we know what to call it and we know how what we need to do to, to right. live with it. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So the neurologist told Jeanette and Barry she needed an MRI just for more confirmation, and they privately paid for one. Um, and in November 2017, the neur- neurologist confirmed her instincts and diagnosed Jeanette with a disease called multiple system atrophy, also known as MSA. She classified it as a cousin of Parkinson's in terms that we could understand. And she went away, before she diagnosed us, we went away and had the MRI and then came back. And in the meantime, she said, be careful what you read because there's a lot of scary stuff out there. And so we said, okay. So, and she's, anyway, so then we went back and she said that this is uh, most likely what you have. As you know, it's, it's, they don't definitively bar- diagnose Parkinson's or MSA until you're dead. Dead, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. You, um, need, you need an autopsy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need an autopsy. That's right. And and because of that, um, there's no final definition. But because of the autonomic symptoms that I was having, she said that it's not classic Parkinson's disease because I carry some of the other symptoms that they look at. It's the, the bladder dysfunction, the sleep dysfunction, the what kind of um, tremors, again, you have. So stick with me here, Nikki. Immediately after she was diagnosed, still relieved that she has something in the Parkinson's family, Jeanette began to call and share the news. She called up a friend in Vancouver who's also a doctor of ophthalmology. When I told her, I was like, oh, it's MSAP. Woo. And, <laughs> and she didn't get back to me for an entire day. And that's just not like her. And then when she did, it was in a really quiet corner. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just sitting here by myself having a gin and tonic. She said, you enjoy that gin and tonic, and I'm going to call you back in half an hour. So the reality of the situation remains hidden for Jeanette and Barry until she started to poke around on the Internet. I was sitting in the Costco pharmacy waiting room, waiting for my, my new drugs that were going to help me f- function and feel better. And then I was reading up on the disease, and I looked over at Barry, and I said, I don't think this is very good. And he said, in what way? And I said, I think you better read this because I can't, I can't really explain it to you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so she started to find out that what she has is like Parkinson's, but it's also not. Right. So what, what had yet to be explained to Jeanette and Barry is that multiple system atrophy is a deadly disease. Oh, my goodness. It's in the Parkinson's plus family, uh, meaning more aggressive, more progressive, and deadly. So here she goes from feeling relief that she has Parkinson's to now realizing that what she actually has is Parkinson's plus. Right. She has MSA, multiple system atrophy, and it's, you know, it's not good. It's bad. Uh, According to the Mayo Clinic, people with MSA typically only live seven to 10 years from symptom onset. But she had to read it online instead of hearing it from her neurologist. Did she tell you it was terminal at the time? No, never. Really? Never. <laughs> no. That seems... No, it, I think she left that to us to, uh, no. afterwards. Again, she initially didn't want us to read anything, and which is, I think that might have been good because, again, you know, doing your own diagnosis... Uh, Oh yeah, I've, I've, I've had brain tumors <laughs> yeah, yeah. and <laughs> Doctor Google isn't always yeah. isn't always effective. But uh, yeah, once she never no, she didn't really say the extent of it. And again, it was afterwards that we were reading about it and go, oh, this isn't good. Do you this wish she would have? Uh, yes, because of course, yeah. it was it was quite shocking, and it was not only shocking to me; it was shocking to my family. I can only imagine what that must have been like to 
be one of her family members hearing this news? Shocking. Shocking. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, like, what do you what do you do with that information? Yeah. How do you process? You don't you don't really know how much time you have left. Mm-hmm. You, you you know you there's a clock on you. you. It's ticking down, but you don't know from when because it's seven to ten years from symptom onset. It reminds me of when my dad was diagnosed with myelofibrosis. They're like, yeah, this is a three to five year disease from some point, but we don't know what what point we need to start counting. Oh. Jeez, that's so confusing. Yeah, so like you're like, well, so does he have a month? Does he have three years? We don't know. And this is that kind of same like you're like, well, I'm not that off, bad off. So maybe I've got a couple years. And so, so you begin to plan for your death or your mom's death. Yeah, your loved one. You know, here you are wondering when that person is going to start developing these symptoms, when that clock is going to start, what the quality of their life is going to be like and what your life is going to be like leading up to that moment. You know, and here's Jeanette and Barry with plans to enjoy the remaining decades they have together, travel the world. Their waterfront home. They now have this beautiful home. They have kids that have graduated from college. They're off on their own. They were ready for the rest of their life. We thought we had it made, you know? We had a really great life, and and we're active and, and fit and healthy. We have fabulous friends. We have a really close family. We have children that love us, and we love them. And, and it was a good life. And, you know, we live in a beautiful part of the world, like where you can feel the fresh air on your skin when you walk. It's one thing I can still do. I can still feel the fresh air on my skin, but... Yeah, we thought we had it made, and and so I think that that was the most shocking part of the whole thing. It's, it's just so around diagnosis after we've had the gin and tonic and we've had the conversations, and it, it does it does um, it it is shocking. I think is is the only word that I can that I can describe. And sadness. There was a lot of sadness of a lot of going back to who I thought I was and who where I was going and. Um, my friend who has ALS said to me, he said, Jeanette, um, who is a very strong, wonderful man, he said, you can't look back at the person that you were or the person who you thought you were. It's just, you just have to look ahead to the person that you are now. And that's really all we can do. And I'm, yes, this is the person that I am now. And this, we're still me, you know, we're still me inside. You know, that's a really interesting idea. You can't look back at the person that you were. You have this information now, and now, like it or not, it's all about moving forward. Yeah, and moving forward for how long, you don't know. And then you're grieving the the, the life you had. Yeah, I, the past. I had, to, I had to do that. Right. You what know, was that process like? It's horrible. It's yeah. depressing. It's, you know, you, you get into a funk, and then you get out of it, and then you get back into it, and yeah. then you get out of it. <laughs> It's like with with any any time you have to mourn something. Like when my dad died, you know, it hits you in waves. It's mm-hmm. it's not it's not like something that's there and then gone. It's like you'll smell something and then suddenly you're right back there with your dad and then you're like, oh, he's dead, and then you're crying again. And it's like, so it's it hits you out of the blue. Well, yeah, I mean, you're constantly being reminded of it because everything is constantly changing. Correct, and with you know a terminal illness, everything changes. You know, Barry's never been that soft, emotional guy, but he's becoming more vulnerable and finding it easier to cry these days. In the end, we're human, right? And uh, and you realize when, uh, you know, the person you care about most um, is going through this that um, and you can't do anything about it. Uh, yeah, that's another one of the very frustrating things is so you're sort of sitting there um, wanting to do something, but. The avenues are limited to what you can do. And, and as far as Jeanette's concerned, you know, she has all these friends who are now having to think about, oh, my friend is running out of time. And if, for Jeanette, she's she's trying to wrap her brain around like, OK, so how do I deal with that? People um, are very quiet about it. I, I have very, very close friendships. And there's a few of my very, very close friends that I don't see very often. Anymore, I think that uh, people are very uncomfortable with it, to be honest. What would you want? Uh, I think that uh, I'd like to see people while I'm on this earth. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. I'm good. I'm really good. You are. I'm really good. You know, 
I know we talked about this earlier, but the more I hear Jeanette speak, the more I'm sitting here imagining what it would be like knowing that my mom or a close friend of mine had months or just a few years left to live. It's it's a seemingly impossible scenario to imagine. It's a horrible scenario to imagine. Well, I, I delicately brought this up with Barry because mm-hmm. he's having to deal with that in a real way. And yeah. he talked about those moments of false hope. Like when, when Jeanette's having a really good day oh, and you can forget yeah. about the fact that she's dying. Yeah. And then like something hits and you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. You have MSA. And, you know, that disease rears its wicked head. You know, his talk of hope, though, reminded me of the hope lady, Wendy Edie, from episode 12 of season one last year titled Finding Hope in Parkinson's. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember hearing her speak. Yeah. Let's listen back to some of that. To have hope is to open yourself up uh, to the possibility that, uh, that we do live in a world where quite often things where we expect things to go badly, either because of facts that we have or, uh, or things we don't want to find out or fears that we have, and yet uh, often things do uh, actually turn out better than we expected. So as you'll remember, Nikki, Wendy is a HOPE facilitator at the University of Alberta HOPE Studies Central. She relates to Jeanette and Barry more than most as she struggled to get an MSA diagnosis for her husband, David. When we were talking with him about multiple system atrophy, um, he said to me, what do, you, like, what do you think of this? And I said, well, <laughs> I'm devastated. If, if this is what you have, I'm, I'm really devastated. You know, but I, I will be there. I will be with you. And I, uh, even as I was saying it, I thought, geez, I hope that's true. <laughs> So Wendy knows exactly what it's like to have a loved one diagnosed with with such a disease. And she knows what it's like to try to find hope in those darkest places. I mean, this is the woman who cultivates hope for a living. Yeah. And like you get that diagnosis and it's like she hopes that she can follow through in what she's promising her husband being there by his side. And she was the whole way. Uh, David died in January of 2019. Mm. And as hard as it was, Wendy still holds on to that power of hope. Hope work has to be a gentler thing um, for people who are facing a future of kind of continued losses. Um, And so then it's most important, I think, to see yourself as a person uh, who has hope, who has strength. How to remember if we're facing a future, a fearful future, to remember all the times that we showed courage in the past. What, you know, when are we most apt to show courage? How are we most apt to find courage to be able to access that part of our history to take it forward into the future? So how about Jeanette and Barry? How are they holding on to hope? Well, it's not easy, but, but they do. What's, yeah. your, what's your intention when you get out of bed in the morning? My intention is to live today because that's all I have, I guess. Sounds a little cliche, but it's true. Through this journey, Jeanette continues to learn about herself and how when it seems there's nothing you can do, take control of what you can. I am learning that I need to be a bigger advocate for myself to not sugarcoat things because it's just my nature to want to make everything and everyone okay. But I'm learning that maybe I need to take more of a stance in my own care, I guess, for lack of a better word. I need to uh, build more of a team. And this is what I'm trying to do. I've reached out to people like you and, and who have a broad knowledge of a lot of people. And it helps. And I have like my friends and my family and my children and... Um, they're very supportive. And, and the other thing that I really learned from you is that people, when we talked, we talked about what our fears were and, and what our thoughts were. And, and you said that people really want to be empathic when they find out about your condition and they are generally good people. And they, you know, you won't feel bad when you reach out to somebody generally. And it's it's worth the risk. And Absolutely. And I, I never had thought about it that way before. To you know, to rather than trying to hide it or sugarcoat it, if you're actually honest about it, it seems to turn out a little bit better. You know, that's really good advice. Take control of what you can take control of. 
I imagine that that can make a hopeless situation seem like like as if there's a brighter future yeah. or at least a future. It's like, well, what what could make my situation better? Well, if I had more support, you know, right. that'd be great. So in an attempt to build her team and advocate for herself, Jeanette asked her neurologist for a referral to the movement disorder specialist at the UBC Brain Wellness Clinic, where, where I go. And we had talked about the movement disorder clinic earlier in our relationship. She said at some point you might want to look into that. And we don't know, again, we didn't, we, this is new to us. We know nothing. I know nothing about anything, really, as far as it's just what you're presented with. Then I, then I look into it further. You, Larry, had suggested to Barry and I that that's where you went and, and that you felt that they were a good team together to work with. My friend, who's a physician, felt that they were a good team to work with because the resources are at your, at your fingertips. So we, uh, the, one of the first questions we asked at my neurologist appointment was, so what do you think about the movement disorder clinic and, or getting us a referral? Well... That was it for Her that. Her first words were, you know, if you do that, then and uh, then that ends our relationship. And you can't and have a, more than one neurologist so we, at a time. We weren't expecting that. We didn't know that. We thought it was a supplementary thing where they might do their own analysis and, again, provide some other support services. But she was – I think she was offended by it, that we were even thinking. Uh, I think she took it as a personal – that we're not confident of her ability, which was is she is very smart and never a question about that. We were just looking for more support, but she took it differently. So you got fired. So we got I fired. I guess because she I felt she so. was going to get fired. I don't know. Did she give you the referral? <laughs> yes. Oh, good. For See, seven months later. Well, well that's, that's about right to get yeah. in for the first time. But I, again, so in the meantime, I felt a bit lost in left right. field. I was like lost out there in... Parkinsonian cousin land. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I, I I still feel a bit like that. It makes me feel a bit insecure. So what I would do is I'd call the neurologist clinic yeah. uh, and tell them to uh, that you have an appointment, but if you if somebody cancels, you're, you're happy yes. to come in at any time. And we have. Okay, good. Yes, yeah. thank you. And that'll happen. Okay. Uh, yeah. It, ha- it often happens. So did it happen? Yeah, it did, in fact. Oh. On, on Saturday morning, September 7th, we got a call from Jeanette. Hello. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, Jeanette. How are you? Hi, Larry. (laughs) Okay, Nikki, so now this is less than a month after we recorded our first conversation. The Movement Disorder Clinic had a cancellation and fit Jeanette in early. Well, we had an appointment with our neurologist yesterday, and and we went to UBC, to the Brain Health Clinic out there, and saw a new neurologist, and she spent about two, well, almost two hours with us. and. uh, she was she was really great and informative and just talked we talked for a long 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 time and uh, she just did a lot of writing and a lot of looking and a lot of analyzing and a lot of talking and and uh she said at the at the end you know she said she said i'm going i have to go in for another mri to just more confirm and, and nothing can be confirmed 100 percent, as you know either way but um she said that it's most likely um, certain that I have Parkinson's disease and not MSA. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I know. Oh. So whoever thought they'd be so happy to have Parkinson's disease. <laughs> wow. I know we're so happy. And she said, you would not believe. She said, I think that this is the first time this has ever happened. That somebody's walking out of my office with tears of joy because they have Parkinson's disease. I said, well, it's always a first for something, you know? Yeah. And yeah. So So what's that conversation like with you and Barry on the way home? Well, um, Barry quoted Rebecca a few times and said, you know, he feels like a deer in the headlights all over again. And I don't even remember really driving home. I said, I asked Barry at one point if he was okay to drive, and he said yes. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And, yeah, it's just uh, they, overwhelming, right? It just changes, it is. changes your perspective it is. on your life. Well, it does. It, it goes from a very short life to perhaps a, a longer life. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's going to be easy, but it's going to be easier than it was one day ago. Oh, for sure. For you sure. Know? And, uh, um, yes, wow. and this, the struggles that, yeah, they go along with that, I feel like I can handle now. And, and uh, you know, it gives, yeah, it gives me some hope, actually. Mm-hmm. And 
and I said to Barry, I said that, I said, it's people like Larry and you, Rebecca, that are gonna, you know, help help us find a, a solution for this, mm. for this. And, you know, all of us, I feel like I have a team now and where I just didn't have a team before. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's just, yeah. Oh my goodness, what a roller coaster of emotion. Can you imagine oh. planning for your death for two years and then suddenly a doctor goes, you're not dying? Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Ugh. You know, after, through all of that, though, it's incredible what she learned from finding support and the hope that she found in finding a team of people around her, even yourself and Rebecca, who have helped her through this crazy emotional roller coaster of a journey. Well, and that's why it's important not to go through these things alone. Yeah, have a team. Have a team. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting that call from Jeanette, I mean, it made me uncharacteristically emotional. Uh, uh, it's hard. I'm just, I'm, at once, one time I'm pissed at the medical community that you right, had to yeah. go through that. Yeah. And I'm so happy for you and Barry. And, Thank uh, you, Larry. I just, it's, it's infuriating. It's just, people shouldn't have to go through that. No, there's no reason you should have had to deal with that. You had to plan for your end of life. Yeah, you didn't have did. to. Yep. But I mean, let me tell you how much better it looks now. Uh, I'll never take anything for granted. That's for sure. I don't think I really did, but it's hard some days to remain positive. Yeah. Yeah, I don't feel that way now. Yeah. Like I said, I could wake up this morning and feel like I was maybe just a little hungover rather than like I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> so I can, I can deal with that. I can take a couple Advil for that. And I'm good. Right. You know? Yeah, now I'm having you. a cup of coffee and it tastes really nice. And <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And I don't, and I don't feel like I'm going to die. I don't feel like I'm going to die. What a powerful thing to say. I mean, that's not a phrase that people get to say every single day. No. Unbelievable story. So when it comes to a misdiagnosis, that could be so traumatizing. I have to imagine that it's the exception, not the rule. Well, you'd like to believe that, but misdiagnosis of MSA is fairly common. A 2015 study featured on neurology.org featured 134 autopsied brains of people who were clinically diagnosed MSA while living, and only 63% of them had the correct diagnosis at death. Really? 63%? So that means, what, 37% were wrong. Whoa. That's a lot. As it relates to Parkinson's disease, a new Parkinson's UK study shows 25% of people with Parkinson's are misdiagnosed. A third of those are given medication for an illness they don't have. 10% underwent needless operations and procedures. Whoa. That's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. Yeah. You know, 67% is a D or failing. Like, it's like... I'm shocked. I, I would not take that grade home to mom. <laughs> you would not put that grade on the fridge. No. You know, another study by the Mayo Clinic found misdiagnosis of Parkinson's at about 30%. Jeez. Okay, look... You have met a lot of smart people on this journey. Did any of them speak to you as to why misdiagnosis is so common? Yeah, you know, and they're, they're pretty upfront about it. I mean, my neurologist at UBC, Dr. Jonathan Squires, told us from day one that, you know, neurologists aren't very good at diagnosing Parkinson's and misdiagnosis is a real possibility because there's no there's no biomarker. So there's no test they can give you. They, it's all, all right. It's all like, oh, I'm going to test this and I'm going to test this. You got a little tremor. You got this. You know, uh, my wife, Rebecca, and I asked him about it again just recently when we had our last visit. Some years back, the people at the Mayo Clinic, who are much smarter than I am, did a study looking at how good they were, how accurate their diagnosis was. So they took people who had consented to autopsy, and then they looked at, because the definitive diagnosis is still made at autopsy, based on findings in the brain, mm -hmm. and they looked back through the records and said, well, what did we think they had at the first visit? And early on, they were right about 70% of the time. And then at the time of death, they were right about 90% of the time, if I'm remembering the study correctly. Mm. Um, so there is a fairly high rate of misdiagnosis still. A lot of the conditions that get misdiagnosed are actually a condition called progressive supranuclear palsy, because it can look very much like Parkinson's disease, especially early on. 
Um, but th there are some mimics, and it, it speaks to the fact that we really need a better biomarker, a test that we can do to mm -hmm. early on to establish yes, this is Parkinson's disease. Do you do you ever encounter a patient who's been diagnosed Parkinson's, and you're like, that's not Parkinson's, or diagnosed MSA and go, no, that's Parkinson's? More commonly, I've seen the former scenario where you know, even my own patients, I think, okay, well, this is probably Parkinson's disease, and then I follow people along, and then things start to come up that, you know, maybe not. And then, you know, we, we always look out for what are called red flag features, so things that would be unusual for Parkinson's disease that would suggest that someone actually has one of the atypical forms, such as progressive supranuclear palsy or multiple system atrophy. Okay, so are PSP and MSA the main disease Parkinson's is confused with? Well, it's up in the air. When I was in Atlanta for the Michael J. Fox Foundation's Parkinson's IQ Plus U event, I caught up with neurologist Dr. Stuart Factor, who's the director of the Movement Disorder Clinic at Emory University. What, what else can present itself like Parkinson's? Well, in recent days, I've seen people with essential tremor who were diagnosed with Parkinson's, and then they're treated with all these meds that they don't need. And um, uh, there are several drugs that can make you look like you have Parkinson's disease, drug-induced Parkinsonism, we call it. And so it's important to differentiate those because the, the, um, um, you know, the prognosis, the progressive course, the treatment, all those things are different for that. So, um, and you need to make sure there isn't some other neurological problem that may be adding to your issues. So... Um, there's never a shortage of people who come to see us who have a diagnosis of Parkinson's that don't actually have it. Wow. You know, so Nikki, there's essential tremor, there's drug-induced tremor, there are Parkinson's plus diseases like MSA and progressive supernuclear palsy and uh, corticopausal degeneration and Lewy body dementia, and some people even include Alzheimer's. It seems like the medical community should be able to more accurately differentiate between these diseases without giving people false hope or, on the other hand, unnecessary grief, you know, depending on what the misdiagnosis is versus the real issue. You'd think, yeah. I mean, all the neurologists I speak to want that. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to money for research oh. and discovering a true biomarker for Parkinson's. You know, biomarkers, that measurable indicator of some biological state or condition uh, so often associated with blood tests, but researchers in Parkinson's are looking at spinal fluid, eye tests, earwax, sebum, inflammation of the brain, gut biome, skin biome, alpha-synuclein, olfactory malfunction like loss of smell, REM sleep behavior disorder, and the list goes on and on and on, and we just haven't found that thing yet. Yeah, you know it's a long list when you literally had to take a breath halfway through it? <laughs> <laughs> and this, and that, and this. Oh my goodness. You know, I'm thinking about Jeanette and Barry, and how, because there isn't a biomarker, they planned her death for two years. Mm. What does that do to a person's relationship? Because they were in the planning stage. What does it do to your perspective on life? And how do you readjust after finding out this new news? Yeah, it's all very good questions. You know, Rebecca and I sat down with Barry and Jeanette three months after the new diagnosis to just sort of give them some space, bring them back and go, okay, let's, let's reflect on what just happened. And so we started by playing them a clip of the call from Jeanette. Wow. She said that it's most likely um, certain that I have Parkinson's disease and not MSA. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. What's your reaction, Barry and Jeanette, to hearing that? It still seems uh, a little um, surreal, I guess. Yeah, I feel like that's somebody, somebody else talking and not myself. Yeah, I'm feeling very emotional right now. So that was September 7th. Yes, it was. Yeah. How are you living your life differently now? I feel like... Uh, I feel like I'm a little... calmer. Yeah, I feel like I'm in not as in much of a rush as I was before. Um... Uh, I'm a little bit more, um, I sit back and think about things longer than I used to. 
in the last two years. Um, I feel like I could have more good days than bad days, I like to think. Um, I feel a little more hopeful, but at the same time I feel, sometimes I feel um, a little bit tired and heavy than I used to. I mean, before I felt kind of uh, not myself before, but now I really feel not myself because I'm figuring out how I'm going to live longer feeling this way. And that is, um, that was the most surprising thing because when my diagnosis changed, I thought that I was going to all of a sudden feel better and be able to do these things that I couldn't do for the last two years, but that didn't happen. So um, almost a little bit, yeah, sad in some ways because grateful, but sad. Yeah. Yes. Barry, what's your reaction? Um, well, it's probably the same as they, uh, today. Um, uh, you know, our family and friends are very thankful for the change. And, uh, and I think about that every day. And it's good. It's positive. It has changed. In some ways, it's, you're more relaxed with it. But you still do the roller coaster each day of highs and lows. Yeah, you mentioned on the phone call with us that you told the neurologist you were happy. Yes. To get the, the diagnosis of Parkinson's. Yes. Are you still happy? I am still happy about that, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm not happy to have Parkinson's, but I'm happy to not have MSA. <laughs> right. Yes. We're happy too. We're, <laughs> thank yeah. you very much. I'm happy that I met you guys. Because if I didn't have Parkinson's, I wouldn't have met you guys. Right. This is this is a positive. I wouldn't have met my my new peeps. <laughs> so interesting that you had a grieving process oh. when you had the MSA diagnosis, and yes. then you had a whole new yes grieving process in a way, a very oh, different one yes. when you got the different diagnosis. Yes, I went. And the other thing that I think greatly affected me was people. I, I have a lot of friends, a lot of people that I'm very close to, my family and my and my friends, and and uh, I went from seeing a lot of people a lot of the time to kind of being by myself a lot because there wasn't as much panic, and that for me was was very, yeah, it was a little that took takes a little time too, yeah. This is I Barry was just away for a little while with our uh, youngest son and. I was by myself for 10 days. My sister would come and be with me um, in the daytime, but I was by myself for the first time in two years, um, completely by myself. That was, that was huge. That was big for me. That opportunity to just be by yourself, to reflect, I mean, incredible. And maybe a little scary because you've always had a support there. Yeah. Like for the last two years, you've not been alone. Right. Like there's like... Well, who's going to watch after me? For me, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a life change this has been for her in so many different ways. Yeah. And Rebecca and I asked about uh, any notices they've seen on the impact of their relationship. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. It's been changed for a while. It's been changed for a while. It changed the dynamic of our, our relationship two years ago. And I think for, uh, I think we were both hoping that it was going to kind of go back to a little bit more how it used to be, but it hasn't. Um, in in good ways and bad ways. I mean, Barry and I are, we we've we've always been very close, but I think now we're closer. So in that way, it's good. Um, bad in the way that I think we had both envisioned this part of our life being very different than it is, and sometimes that's a little hard to get used to. Again, I well, I think everybody, you know, everybody's different, so. And I handle, you know, at times it's very emotional. And I, and I, again, I tend to freeze up when that happens. And I'm not all of a sudden Mr. Congeniality and want to talk about everything. And, <laughs> and I've tried to be a better listener and uh, more empathetic, but uh, it's really hard to do. I find it really hard. So, again, I, you feel that stress from that and you want to be that giving and again knowing when to push when to pull relax and uh, 
it, that's just challenging every day. Mm-hmm. And again, I keep saying the roller coaster thing, but that's it's it's hard to adjust the emotions mm-hmm. day in day out. How are you feeling today about the neurologist who misdiagnosed you? For the first time in my life, I was quite. Uh, I found a different kind of anger later on, but it took me a little while. At the very beginning, I was, I was quite uh, defensive of her. So I was thinking, you know, but it, it now I'm, I'm trying to get over it a little bit. I, I need to move on. I need to move past. I think this is part of my new personality. I don't. I'm not used to feeling this a little bit um, resentful or angry. It's not usually part of my my old personality, but I think it's maybe a part of my new personality and I'm getting used to that. You know, you go from a position of pretty well total trust. Yes. Think you have the right diagnosis. Listen to everything she said, especially initially when she said stay off the internet mm-hmm. before she knew. And uh, you go to that to a big disappointment and um, and she never really acknowledged that there you know that it wasn't handled correctly I don't say it was a mistake but um, it probably comes back to not spending enough time with each individual patient and um, so and she hasn't till the end here acknowledged in any way that she could have done something differently and, and that's and to me that's a it's a bit sad and disappointing in that it's not anger yeah anything you would do differently if you could go back in time and redo it yes i would get a second opinion even if you like and trust your neurologist which we did i would just it's nothing personal it's just what i need to do and i would move mountains and and tunnels to do that because it had a big impact on my family and my friends how are they doing great <laughs> They're all off away, so I think they must be great. They're feeling pretty good about that. My friends, my sister, my dad, my my children, they're all gone somewhere. So that my husband left. Everybody's like, well, she's, she's okay. We all must be oh, feeling pretty good. Oh, we can go on holiday like, now. Yeah. Oh, she just has Parkinson's. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. Yeah, she's good. She'll figure it out. Mm. <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah, when you think about all the different emotions that you would be faced with when it comes to a misdiagnosis, of certainly grief, and we heard a lot about that through this episode, but anger. Of course, you would be angry too. Two years of her life, she thought she was going to die. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... You'd be angry. You'd be really, really angry. Well, you go through all of the emotions of grief, right? Yeah. Like, like, and then you do the bargaining and you, like, For sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you go through all that. I believed this before and I believe it even more now after listening to Jeanette's story. How we really, really need more money for research. We mm. need more research. Bottom line, there needs to be more research. More, more, more. Each episode, we check in with Larry and his wife, Rebecca. I am in awe of Jeanette and Barry and how they're managing this. And I'm sure this is still at the beginning of a new phase of their story. And they're still working things out. They're still, as they said, they're still in that deer in headlights phase, I believe, of what's our new reality and and how are we going to negotiate this and figuring out those terms and mm-hmm. what it what it all means well yeah like as i think about it she was diagnosed msa so the the experience she was having was in her head an msa experience which is very intense it's 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 short and and then it becomes a parkinson's diagnosis which she's quote unquote never had even though she's had it all along um and it's you, you think, well, I had MSA, so now it's going to be less intense, but it's just, it's the same intensity because it's the same disease you've always had. Right. It just has a different name to it that you have to go, oh shit, this is, this is Parkinson's. Right. And this is going to happen for a long time. Oh, okay. Right. I got to wrap my head around that. And some people might find that almost as difficult to accept or come to terms with. Right. Uh, and Jeanette and Barry and I, in our first interview, talked about. You know, is it better to know that you're going to die or is it better to have a long life? We had opposite opinions on that. Like for me, I, I mean, we've talked about this. I've been like, like as bad as I feel some days, I just wish I knew when it was going to end. Mm-hmm. 
And then she's like, you don't want to know when you're going to die. Because it's just, it's terrorizing. And there, there are lessons on both sides of that. The other thing I thought was was really interesting and spoke to me a bit is the the impact that it seems to be having on their relationship and would have on any marriage or partnership. You've negotiated, to the best of your ability, what an MSA end of life is going to look like, an intense end of life, and what your marriage is willing to absorb and what your, what your commitment means mm-hmm. and all of that. And again, it doesn't go back to just being, and they said as much, it doesn't go back to just being the way it was before. No. It can't possibly, right? So they then have to negotiate, okay, well, what does the marriage look like? So it's not only like, what is the perspective on life and disease and other things? It's how is our marriage going to handle this? And how is it going to need to shift and change to be able to accept this new reality? Right. And it's, it's you know, like when all of us are diagnosed with Parkinson's or, or whatever disease, uh, that negotiation happens amongst couples. You know, we've talked to other couples in the community who, you know, everybody, there's that ebb and flow and that, that sort of negotiation period and trying to figure it out. And uh, and I, I don't know that anybody has the, the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for us, it just comes down to trying to communicate as open and, and honestly as we can. And yet we still have those days where we're like, yeah, we're just not on the same communication level. No. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, we had those before, (laughs) Parkinson's too, but I think they do happen a little more frequently now. And, um, and that's a a tough phase. What I knew, what I know is that I admire their, their grace and strength and, and how they're dealing with this. And we're seeing it relatively up close and they really are handling it with a lot of grace and strength. And, uh, I'm glad they're our friends. Me too. Um, I'm very glad they're our friends, and I think uh, they, what they have done, is a great example for what we all can do, which is um, to seek out and surround ourselves with people that can be of support. And I think that's as important as anything in dealing with this disease. I agree. And what we've discovered is that. It's about our relationship and our family and that nucleus and how strong and honestly and um, lovingly we can deal with each other as we go through our own personal roller coasters and the collective roller coaster, but also valuing that larger community and what that adds to us feeling supported and and um, connected. Mm-hmm. And that's an important part of the healing process. Both both of those. Yeah, for sure. I love you. I love you too. Our partners at Parkinson Canada updated and released new Parkinson clinical guidelines, which address many issues of diagnosis. In brief, it says... Given the potential error in making a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, patients should be followed routinely and the diagnosis should be reconsidered if typical features emerge. You can read more at parkinsonclinicalguidelines.ca. We also want to hear from you, so you can record a voice message for us at speakpipe.com slash when life gives you Parkinson's, like Christy did. Hey, Larry. My name is Christy Daniels. I'm from Boston, USA, and like you, I'm a YOPDer. I love listening to your podcast, Beamed In from the Great White North. The Parkinson's tribe isn't a tribe I ever wanted to be part of, of course, but now, as a card-carrying member, I cannot be more proud of how we rally together and fight tooth and nail. There just is no other option than to fight and to laugh. I'm pursuing DBS surgery even though I am still on a very low dose of L-DOPA. I may be an anomaly for now for exploring this option so early on, but I believe entirely DBS will soon become more of a first-line treatment. I'll keep you posted. Please keep up the podcast. And again, leave your message at speakpipe.com slash when life gives you Parkinson's. Next time on When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Do you hear that? Do you hear something shaking? Or is it only me who hears that? That, do you hear that? That's my hand. Something's rattling. 
because my hands are shaking. So she kept it a secret for a year. You guys uh, came to terms with it. At some point you go, hey, uh, do you mind if I film us for a bit? How'd that go? The way I positioned it to my to my mom was, let's look at your newfound kind of artistic renaissance in conjunction with, you know, the uncertainty of Parkinson's and what that does to your artwork. My son, Zachary, is behind the camera making this documentary. You know, there is this on both of our levels and and as well as my father as well as my sister who are also part of the film there is this desire to have these conversations about how parkinson's has affected our family when did you first notice that mom was shaking she was scared we both were still am this is when life gives you parkinson's a curious cast podcast our presenting sponsor is parkinson canada parkinson.ca One of the programs Parkinson Canada offers is a confidential information and referral line. So if you have any questions at all, don't hesitate to reach out to info at parkinson.ca or call toll-free 1-800-565-3000. Parkinson Canada colleagues are there for you. They're great listeners and can answer questions on a huge range of topics. You can also check out their Parkinson Clinical Guideline at parkinsonclinicalguideline.ca. Thank you to our special guests. Jeanette Fisher-Penn. Barry Penn, Dr. Jonathan Squires, Dr. Stuart Factor, and Rebecca Gifford. If you're interested in Parkinson Plus diseases, you may want to check out the extra dosage of Robin Williams, which was posted on November 19th. Also from February 2019, episode 11 of season one, Parkinson's and the Caregiver's Journey. Special thanks to our promotional partners, Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. And in the U.S., Parkinson's IQ Plus U. This is a free series of Parkinson's events from the Michael J. Fox Foundation designed to educate and empower people with Parkinson's and their partners. Go to michaeljfox.org slash PDIQ. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, give the show a five-star rating. And please share in the comments why you recommend listening to the podcast. You can also engage us on social media. It's Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.